This is Are We Europe, the podcast for changing continents. We ask the small questions and get the big answers. We dive into all things European cultures and identities and bounce all over the continent. It's about the places and people that come to life in sound-rich stories. Readouts from our print magazines, episodes from one of the amazing podcasts in our podcast family, or intimate behind-the-scenes interviews with our favorite storytellers and Europe's most talented creators. We got it all on this channel. It's Europe, streaming right in your ears. Are we Are we on? Are we, are we Europe? What the truth is and how it should be told. I think there are a lot of borders to be broken. You can build it together. Community. And I believe in Josh. Open minds, open borders, openness. Try to make Europe sexy with all sense. Are we? Are we? Are, are we, we Europe? Europe? <laughs> what up? Are we Europe? Boom. This podcast is a part of Sphera. A collective of independent media outlets from across Europe. For more information, visit sphera-hub.com. You'll be delighted to hear that my uh, brief career as an English nationalist is now over. That didn't last very long, did it? We did get some complaints last week about your singing. Saying it was triggering. Yeah. Are you very sad about our national heartbreak, Dominic, in the football? No, I'm very proud of the lads. And I think, yeah, coming second is really good. It is. And it's much better than we did in Eurovision. By a mile. When we came last. I think we should promise not to mention football again for a while. Although we're not going to be promising anything for a while because we're about to take a holiday. So enjoy this final episode of us talking before we disappear for a while. And in fact, you're spending some of this holiday in the UK. We're actually in the same country for the first time in a really long time. Yes, indeed. I'm sitting in my parents' house in quarantine at the moment. The UK border guards let me in yesterday, which was actually quite nerve-wracking. It was my first time crossing the border since Brexit had properly happened. And it's weird. It is weird, yeah. It's the bright new era of uh, sunlit uplands that we were promised. Exactly. But this week, we're not talking about Brexit. We never talk about Brexit. Why did I talk about Brexit? I'm sorry. Our guest this week is an old friend of the show, Alias Pengov Bitens, the Slovenian blogger, political analyst and podcaster. We asked him to drop by because... Slovenia has been in the news a lot lately after the country took over the rotating presidency of the Council of the EU. It's a bit of a mouthful. What is that? We'll get to it a bit later. But basically, a different country gets to steer this big ship that is the EU for six months at a time. And at the beginning of the month, Slovenia took the helm. And the presidency had an immediately shaky start, mainly because of one man, the Prime Minister of Slovenia, Janez Janša. Alias will be joining us later to talk about Jancha, but first. Who's had a good week, Katie? It's been a good week for a Bulgarian talk show host and singer called Slavi Trifonov. He is the frontman of a band called the Cuckoo Band. They do a mixture of like rock and traditional Bulgarian folk music. And he's also the guy who just won Bulgaria's general election. He's the leader of an anti-establishment party called There Is Such a People. 
or ITN under its Bulgarian abbreviation. And There Is Such a People is literally the name of one of his albums. So well done to Slavi for capitalizing on his own brand, I guess. Uh, it's actually very annoying that we can't play some of his music for rights reasons. Like it would have been quite nice to do this whole segment to a, a backing track from that album. Sorry, backtrack. Bulgaria's elections were just won by a rock star. Yeah, so his party, ITN, they ran on a strong anti-elite message. Uh, aside from that, they've been quite criticised for not really having much of a policy platform, apart from some quite striking things like trying to get Bulgarian astronauts into space. Uh, they also didn't campaign very hard. They didn't do any rallies. They didn't even have any posters. So it was really Trifonov's star power driving this, and it worked. Uh, his party managed to get a quarter of the vote in last weekend's elections. They're going to get 65 seats in parliament. And that in itself is quite big news because this is the first time since 2009 that the right-wing party, Gerb, has lost an election. Even though they only did a little bit less well than ITN, they also got nearly a quarter of the vote. This is their worst ever result. So it's a pretty big indication of how people feel about them. Has this got anything to do with all those anti-corruption protests that were happening? A while back. Yeah, it does indeed. So the background to all of this is a big national conversation that's been happening in Bulgaria about corruption. Uh, we've talked a couple of times in recent months about how these big, big street protests over corruption in Bulgaria have really taken off over the past year or so. There are multiple scandals that people have been mad about. Uh, one of them was the Prime Minister, Boyko Borisov, allegedly trying to use prosecutors to go after the president because he didn't like him. There are also those pictures of Borisov uh, sitting next to a gun and a big stack of 500 euro notes. Remember that? Mm. And there have been scandals about EU money going missing and shady business dealings involving oligarchs. So the background to this election was just muck and corruption. And actually a few different parties in response to this ran on a pretty strong anti-corruption message. So there was ITN. They pitched themselves as the party that will bring morality back to politics. And there were also two smaller parties who were very involved with the corruption protests on the streets, who between them got about 17% of the vote. So is the Rockstar guy going to team up with those other anti-corruption parties and are they going to form a... A happy anti-corruption government? Uh, no. Oh. And that is something that has left people very taken aback over the past few days. Trifonov doesn't want to seem to govern with anyone. Uh, he doesn't really like political deal-making. He says it smacks of the sleazy politics that he's trying to get rid of. So he's been like, yeah, I know that we only got a quarter of the vote, but we're going to try and govern on our own. What? He refuses to work with any of the big parties. Can he do that? I mean, he's at least asked for the right to try and form a government. And he's asked those two other small anti-corruption parties to support him. But he's come up with his own proposed cabinet that he wants to run the country. And interestingly, he doesn't want to be prime minister himself, despite being the big charismatic face that won this election. He has some health problems, which I read might have something to do with it. But he suggested that someone else be prime minister, a veteran politician called Nikolai Vasilev. And he's put forward a bunch of other names for people who he wants to be ministers. He's described all of these people as honest, honourable people who speak lots of languages, which does sound nice. Do we buy that? If maybe. I don't know. I mean, these people are not very well known. To his credit, he wants to put women in big roles. The defence minister and the finance minister would both be women. There would also be a Roma minister for the first time. But the whole idea of trying to run a country and get laws passed when you've got 25% of the vote and you're not in coalition with anyone. And it was also a rubbish turnout. I mean, less than 40%, apparently, because 
a lot of Bulgarians have gone on holiday. That also doesn't give you much legitimacy. And a lot of people are just saying this whole thing is not workable. So is this just going to end up in new elections then? Well, yeah, this is what a lot of people are saying. Uh, if it doesn't, if this rather unorthodox government of Trifonovs somehow manages to go ahead, that in itself has some quite worrying implications because... He doesn't want to be prime minister, but he clearly does want to carry on wielding influence over this party. And he would because of how charismatic he is. And having that kind of influence without him actually having an elected role in government, he would just be completely unaccountable. If he doesn't manage to turn this proposed government into a reality, that would indeed mean that Bulgaria has to have yet another election, which would be exhausting because the only reason this election happened is that there was an election back in April and no one managed to form a government back then either. So it's really been a very weird and interesting election. Slavid Trifonov is not a normal politician and it's not really clear that his plan to form a government is going to work. But for winning the election in the first place, I'm going to give him a good week. Lucky guy. Lucky guy. Who's had a bad week? It's been a pretty terrible week in Amsterdam after an award-winning Dutch crime reporter, Peter Adevries, was shot five times at close range in broad daylight whilst leaving a television studio in the centre of the city. De Vries is, just over a week after the attack, still fighting for his life in a critical condition. It's just awful. Um, do we know anything about who might have done it? Well, within a few hours, they'd actually arrested two people on the motorway in what is alleged to be the getaway car. One is a 21-year-old from Rotterdam and the other is a 35-year-old Polish national. Of course, it's far too early to know for sure what the motive is and who else is involved. But based on a newspaper interview with the 21-year-old suspect's family, there is this suggestion that it was a paid killing connected to a murder gang and some drugs gangs. But this is not just a one-off. Gangs and organised crime, particularly connected to drugs, have been becoming more and more of a problem in the Netherlands in recent years. The chairman of the police union even described the Netherlands as having characteristics of a narco-state when being interviewed by the BBC. Wow. I mean, that's really kind of surprising because, you know, for those of us outside the country, we tend to think of the Netherlands as a place that is very, like, liberal on soft drugs, at least. So the idea that they have this massive problem with drug gangs, criminal gangs, organising this whole thing. It, it's quite surprising. Yeah, I agree. It, it is a bit surprising. Um, but it's worth noting, as you say, that hard drugs are not legal. And secondly, when it comes to the soft drugs like marijuana, they are tolerated mainly as opposed to being totally legal. We've discussed it on the show before, but the production of marijuana is still actually illegal. So even though you were allowed to buy it from these so-called coffee shops where no one drinks much coffee, there are still often criminal enterprises involved in the production. And this is something the politicians are working on, but there doesn't seem to be a great solution yet. So why would a drugs gang want to kill this journalist? Well, we don't know. Uh, and we also don't know definitively that it was a drugs gang that ordered the hit. But there is one pretty convincing theory. Keep in mind that it is still just a theory, though. People are connecting it to this huge trial known as the Marengo trial, which involves 17 suspects standing trial for involvement in various murders or attempted murders, all thought to be leading members of the Mokro Mafia, which is a Dutch-Moroccan criminal organisation. The trial has a crown witness, someone called Nabil B, an ex-member of the gang who turned on the other gang members, and it's actually a really terrible story. Since Nabil decided to give a statement against the gang members, there's been quite a horrific set of events around him and the people around him. 
First, his brother, who had nothing to do with the gang, was murdered. Then, in 2019, his lawyer was murdered, also shot at close range. A trial for that murder actually just began this week. The reason why people are wondering if the shooting of Peter A. de Vries was also connected to this trial is because de Vries had been functioning as the confidant and media representative for Nabil B., the crown witness. Mm. The lawyer of Tagi, who's the head suspect in this Marengo trial, says that de Vries's shooting has nothing to do with him and the shooting could turn out to have a different motive. But de Vries himself had said before the attack that he had discovered he was on Tagi's death list. And how famous is Peter in the Netherlands? Is he like a household name? Yeah, he's extremely famous. He came to prominence in the 80s when he was reporting on the kidnapping of Freddie Heineken. And he actually tracked down one of the kidnappers in Paraguay in that case. Heineken is in the beer family. Yeah, but perhaps his most well-known work was around the disappearance of the American teenager Natalie Holloway on the island of Aruba in 2005. He managed to get this explosive admission out of a Dutch suspect in that case, which he broadcast on TV in 2008. And that TV show, to this day, is the most watched non-sports programme in Dutch television history. So basically Mm. everyone knows who he is. He also won an Emmy for that work. So he's incredibly famous and therefore this shooting has been a huge shock for the country. It provoked a big public debate around organised crime in the Netherlands. And it's also provoked a conversation around the general safety of journalists. This is sadly not the only instance of violence against journalists in recent years. In 2018, there was an attack on the Panorama magazine by a biker gang who shot at the offices with an anti-tank weapon, which is pretty astonishing. In the same year, there was also an attack on the Telegraph newspaper in which two guys just drove into the front of the building, setting it on fire. And in fact, the TV show that De Vries had just appeared on before he was shot had to cancel their show last weekend, reportedly due to serious threats to the building. So it raises big concerns about the safety of journalists. And the shooting is not only significant for the Netherlands, but for the whole of Europe. It made me think of the other journalists who have been killed because of their work in recent years. Jan Kuciak and his fiancée Martina Kusnirova in Slovakia the TV crime reporter Georgios Karaivas, who was killed outside his home just in April this year in Athens. And, of course, the Maltese journalist Daphne Caruana Galizia, who we've talked about before on this show. And her sister, Corinne Vela, who has been working to make investigative journalists safer since her sister's death, she said to the Voice of America news organisation, people seem to think this is an Italian problem or a Southern European problem but it's a transnational problem and it affects countries and journalists across the EU. So something needs to be done to help protect crime reporters particularly. I don't think there is one single clever solution, but this is just another instance that is painting a pretty bleak picture for the safety of journalists in Europe. It also just makes me think that we need to really appreciate people like Peter so much more. I mean, the risks that these journalists are willing to take to uncover wrongdoing, it's just astonishing. And we owe people like him and those other journalists that you mentioned and people living under police protection in Europe, you know, like Roberto Saviano in Italy. We we just owe them a real debt. They're incredibly courageous people. In this final week before we take a summer break, we have two lovely new supporters to thank. They are Frank von Roy and Todd Verkamp. 
Thank you so much to you guys and to everyone else who has been keeping this podcast running by chipping in a few bucks a month. Uh, One of the things that we're going to do with our summer holiday, Dominic, is to get through the backlog of personalized audio messages that we need to send to people who support us in the five euros a month bracket. They're like mini personalized podcasts. People seem to really like them. And they're also a bit freaked out by them because it's like the podcast is talking to them. Yeah, so if you're missing us over the summer, then come and become a five euro, five dollar, five pound Patreon and you'll get a little personalised podcast for us while you're missing us over the summer. It's quite presumptuous of me to assume that you're going to miss us. No one's going to miss us. Um, You can find all of the info at patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. Those of you who've been listening since the early days of the Europeans, you may remember there was a period where I was completely obsessed with Slovenia and decided it was my favourite country. And I'm still obsessed with Slovenia. I think it's actually the country I want to go back to first once we're all properly travelling again. Oh yeah, you took some amazing photos on that holiday. I was so jealous. It's still the best country. Um, And I've actually come armed for today's episode with a couple of fun Slovenia facts, which were posted on Twitter by Eurostat this week. You ready? Go for it. Did you know that 26% of Slovenians wear smartwatches? That's amazing. It is one of the highest percentages in Europe. (laughs) What a weird statistic. I mean, I don't have any explanations for these facts, by the way. We should really have asked Aliage, but never mind. Moving on. Fact number two. Slovenians are also the most satisfied nation in the EU with their personal relationships. They're very happy people. Wow. We really should all move there. I think that might have something to do with fact number three, which is that two thirds of Slovenians live in detached houses, which is the second highest level of detached housing in the EU. No noisy neighbours to deal with. So is it really low density population then? I guess so, yeah. Everyone's just out in their lovely detached houses, keeping bees. They're also really big on beekeeping. Anyway, uh, leaving whimsical statistics aside, the situation in Slovenia is not all shiny and positive. And in fact, the country has been heading in a rather worrying direction of late. You may have heard of the populist prime minister, Janez Janša. These days, he is increasingly mentioned in the same breath as Hungary's Viktor Orban, which is never a great sign. And to a lot of observers of Central Europe, it feels pretty undeniable that Slovenia is heading in the same illiberal direction as Hungary and Poland. The big question is whether that direction can be reversed. So it's an alarming situation, and it comes just as the spotlight in Europe is really turning to Slovenia. Uh, As Dominic said earlier, they have just taken over the president of the EU for the next six months. They are in the driving seat. But for those of us outside the country, I think a lot of us have maybe seen some worrying headlines about Slovenia but we don't really know what exactly is going on. But do not fear, because we have a superb guest to explain all of it for you. You may have heard him on the podcast before, Aliaj pengov Betents, political analyst, blogger, podcaster, and generally great explainer of all things Slovenian. Could you maybe start by telling us, what does this supposed democratic backsliding in Slovenia actually look like? Like, what are the worrying things that are happening right now? It's uh, the usual um, illiberal tropes that would be rule of law or the lack thereof, pressuring the media, pressuring the judiciary, basically using state assets as your own personal piggy bank to finance political operation and prop up, shall we say, friendly business people to then further prop up your political operation. That said, Slovenia has nuances between what's happening in Slovenia and what's happening in Hungary. 
and Poland for that matter. The biggest difference being that Janusz Janša, Slovenian Prime Minister, has not achieved a supermajority that would allow him to shape the country in his own image. He runs a minority government right now and doesn't look like he's going to achieve that supermajority anytime soon with the way the field is set up right now. He's got an opportunity now. He's in possibly the most powerful position he's ever going to be in in the EU. He's holding the presidency of the Council of the EU. And it's this position that's kind of meant to steer the ship that is the EU and be a moderator and hopefully leaving aside national interests. And they're kind of meant to function as a neutral arbiter. But is there any chance that he's going to function like this, that there's going to be a kind of calm six months for the EU ahead? Short answer, uh, good luck with that. Rather longish answer, um, there is a chance on specific issues. So there is an agenda set, there is a groundwork laid, there is a specific portfolios that actually have, you know, things to pass and will probably do a decent job at steering the ship, as you put it. But when it comes to the uh, incendiary issues, virtue signaling, or at least populist virtue signaling, if you will, when Janša himself will be present rather than specific portfolio ministers, then things might get heated up and not as European as one might have hoped for. One of the first things that's grabbed the headlines since Slovenia has taken over the presidency is the fact that Slovenia has offered some support to Orban on this horrible anti-LGBTQ legislation. They're the only other country to do that apart from Poland, so it's a pretty small club. That seems like a pretty grim way to start things off, doesn't it? Of course it does, and, and it's self-defeating. I mean, you yourself mentioned that the presiding country is supposed to be a neutral arbiter, in which in this case Slovenia definitely was not, although I'm pretty sure that if pressed, they would go with the explanation that at the time they were not yet the presiding country, etc., etc. But the initial Slovenian position was that the country will take no position on the the Benelux initiative criticizing the Hungarian anti-LGBT legislation, precisely because we are about to become the presiding country. But then that position came from the foreign ministry. Prime Minister Janša stepped in and went fully on board with Viktor Orban. And the rest, as we know, is history. All hell breaks loose and whatever was left of the Slovenian credibility at the start of the EU presidency was left in ruins. Yeah, Janša also showed some pretty erratic behaviour at the opening of the presidency in Ljubljana last week, and uh, it ended up with Franz Timmermans, one of the vice presidents of the EU, refusing to stand in a photo with him because Janša had been trying to connect the dots between some of his social democratic opposition politicians in Slovenia and some judges. And it was a really uncomfortable event by the sounds of things. And do you get any sense that the Janša team regret Janša's behaviour, that they kind of wish he would behave himself? Team Janša probably don't. Team Slovenian EU presidency probably have lost a couple of hours sleep over it, I would hope. In Slovenia, nobody was really surprised with him doing that. It's just that we sort of hoped that he would see that the moment is special and that he would refrain from doing that. But I guess it's in his nature that he just can't help himself. So he did exactly what everybody hoped. 
he wouldn't do. But then there was his address to the European Parliament, which by all accounts was a fairly muted affair from his point of view. So I'm guessing that we will see a lot of this blowing hot and cold at the same time, supposedly trying to keep everybody guessing what his next move will be. But in reality, his next move, whatever it will be, will become more and more irrelevant because things will start happening around him. Some people have suggested that maybe it's a good thing to have Slovenia in the presidency because it'll put the spotlight on the country and then that can be used to like put pressure on them and make them move in a, a less liberal direction, maybe. I mean, what do you think of that idea? It sounds naive, even as I'm saying it. The way things are set up in Slovenia right now, it maybe is not all that naive. You know, when Hungary sort of slipped from the whatever controlled bigger EU nations thought they had over it, it was embarrassing. When Poland did that, everybody went says, oh, it's Poland, it's traditional, etc., etc. But now we have a, the third club member and it's becoming, you know, a crowd. So I think that everybody else in Europe is starting to get worried, is starting to notice that if unattended, this illiberalism can crop up in the most unlikely of places, at least from a European perspective, because Slovenia for a long time was considered to be a model student and a, the, the non-problematic member state, etc., etc. So, yes, it's a good thing that this happened right now. And it's also a good thing because the forces that are pushing back against illiberalism in Slovenia are emboldened by this uh, both show of support and show of pressure against Janša's government and are trying very hard to make a distinction between the country itself and the government, which just happens to be running it at this particular time. I mean, he often gets compared to a, a certain orange man who used to live in the White House. And that is partly because of his politics. It's also partly because of his slightly deranged Twitter presence. <laughs> Do you think that is a useful comparison to make comparing him to Trump? Or is it just us, you know, lazily seeing it, everything through an American lens as usual? There are elements of Trumpism in Yansha, definitely. His connections to the Republican Party in the United States are well documented and he is, wears them as a, a badge of honor. There are elements of uh, Viktor Orban in him. After all, Viktor Orban, through people in his orbit, is financing a large part of Yansha's propaganda media machine in Slovenia, not to mention uh, Janša's party, the SDS itself. There are elements of uh, former Yugoslav autocrat Josip Brostito in him, hence the nickname uh, moniker Marshal Twito. You can pick and choose and you will see everything in him which makes him specifically, Janez Janša, a very brooding, dark-thoughted guy who looks at the world as this giant conspiracy where everybody is out to get him. I think you could definitely say that Ursula von der Leyen is kind of treating him a bit like she treated Trump and she's having to walk this tightrope between having a functioning, working diplomatic relationship with him whilst also publicly pushing back against some of his positions and anti-democratic tendencies. Do you think she's walking that tightrope well? In her speech at the beginning of the Slovenian EU presidency, she quoted directly from the speech of the first Slovenian president, Milan Kuchan, when he, and then by extent her, said that today's dreams are allowed, tomorrow is a new day. That's the seminal Kuchan speech in 1991 when Slovenia became independent. Thing is, Janša sees Kuchan as his arch enemy. So this was a very open, undiplomatic and pointed uh, rebuke of everything Janša stands for by Ursula von der Leyen. 
Interesting. There's some sort of like subtle shade going on there. I mean, this is one of the things I'm finding really interesting about Slovenia taking over right now. It feels like it is highlighting this gulf that there is within Europe, like this fundamental gulf about what the EU is about. Like you have people like Ursula von der Leyen saying Europe has shared values, not being homophobic is one of them. And, you know, some leaders are coming pretty close to saying, like, if you don't sign up to these values, then you shouldn't be part of the European project. And then you have people like Orban and Jansha on the other side saying the EU shouldn't be forcing some countries' values down other countries' throats. And to me, it just doesn't seem solvable. Like, what are we supposed to do about this fundamental disagreement over what Europe is about? Do we just hope it goes away? At least in terms of Slovenia, it actually is a waiting game because um, equal rights, LGBT and other minority protection is a very well entrenched and established standard in Slovenia. Ironically, LGBT movement was one of the first and best organized in the 80s, which sort of laid the groundwork for the civil rebellion or civil society uprising in the late 80s when Jansha was arrested as a dissident and then released as a result of the public pressure, which then set in rapid succession all the events that led to the Slovenian independence. So actually, Jansha himself has LGBT movement of the late 80s to thank for the fact that he is running the EU Council today. There is this liberal democratic, if you will, streak that's uh, underlining Slovenian independence. So in the wider scale of things, what Jansha stands for, is more of an aberration rather than the norm. But one must not keep quiet about it. There must be pushback, there must be organization on all levels, institutional, grassroots, academic, whatever. Things must not be tolerated, lest Slovenia, for example, becomes the next Hungary, when things are evolved or uh, de-evolved to the point where they are unrecoverable or almost unrecoverable. Thank you so much to Aliage for joining us this week. That ended on a much more optimistic note than I thought it might. Yeah, me too. Aliage is an excellent tweeter about civilian politics and general European politics. You can find him at Pengowski, which is also the name of his excellent blog. You will find links in the show notes. Oh, and also, if you speak Slovenian, don't forget to check out his podcast, Europska Cetert. I've heard that it's like this podcast, but Slovenian and probably better. Not difficult. No, we need to stop being self-deprecating. People said they hate how self-deprecating we are, but it's part of our national identity, okay? What have you been enjoying this week? Um, I listened this week to an updated episode of Death in Ice Valley. Remember that podcast? Yeah, we had the lovely host on the podcast a while back. We did, yeah. Back in 2018, when the original series came out, we spoke to Marit Higraf, who is a journalist at the Norwegian broadcaster NRK, and it's a co-production with the BBC World Service. And it tells this story or tries to uncover some of the mystery around the Isdal woman, which is the placeholder name given to an unidentified body that was found in 1970. And it's never been worked out who this person was. 
We should put a link to our old interview uh, with Marit in the show notes because it's a really good interview. But you should also go back and listen to that whole series if you haven't. And if you did listen to it back then, then listen to the latest episode because it's got some interesting updates, um, particularly that there have been a few listeners who have really dedicated their lives to trying to help solve this mystery. I love it when this happens. Yeah, it's so cool that people just decide to dedicate it. We need to do a mystery podcast and then have our listeners help us solve it, okay? Yes, please. <laughs> um, it's also got really nice, rainy Norwegian sound design. Mm. So um, if you just feel like being transported to Bergen, then uh, this is a nice way to do it. Even if there is a gruesome dead body at the centre of it. What have you been enjoying, Katie? Um, well, this is a Nordic special because uh, for the last episode before the summer break, I have treated myself to another helping of European Netflix content. It's not my fault that they keep making good European series and I have to keep recommending them. Uh, I am going to make a concerted effort to consume non-Netflix TV over the summer so that I can spread the streaming love in my recommendations. I'll believe that when I see it. But this week I'm going to recommend Catler. Have you heard of it? No. So Catler is the first Icelandic Netflix original series, and it is a spooky, supernaturally sci-fi kind of show about a volcano that erupted. And one year on, weird stuff is happening in the little town at the edge of the volcano. Uh, I would call it a thriller, but it is pleasingly slow paced. It's got that kind of Nordic TV pacing where it's not rushed, it takes its time. And uh, yeah, I haven't finished it off yet. It's eight episodes, but I am finding it very gripping. It's spooky, but not too spooky. Sounds cool. Highly recommend. Catler on Netflix. My happy ending this week comes from Swedish Lapland, a part of the world where the sun doesn't quite set at this time of year. And that gave four German slackline walkers many daylight hours to attempt to break a highline world record. And break it they did with a 2.1 kilometre walk along a line that they had spent two days rigging between two mountaintops. So what is this slackline walking? Yeah, so on a like, you know, people put these slack lines in parks between two little trees just above the ground. Oh, yeah. Hippies. Yeah. Well, this these people created a 2.1 kilometer slack line with a terrifying drop of 600 meters below. Why do people do these things? Yeah, I don't know. Although you'll be happy to hear that they did seem to have safety ropes attached to them, which was probably necessary because four of the team did make it, but the team was actually bigger um, and not all of them did manage to cross, which is understandable because walking between these two mountains is apparently a really intense weather experience there are really high winds so i can't believe anyone managed to do it but you should go and watch the video i'm gonna retweet it on our twitter account it did kind of make my stomach turn but it's also really beautiful and impressive i'm not sure this qualifies as a happy ending i've got palpitations just thinking about it i think they are very happy Well, listeners, we must be off. Dominic and I are off to frolic in the bushes together. We're going foraging this week. Not until I'm out of quarantine, Katie. 
Good to clarify that. Uh, but we will be back in September after a little break to recharge our batteries. In the meantime, may I recommend that you check out our episodes, Denisa and Josh and Franco. They are the first two episodes in our mini-series, This Is What A Generation Sounds Like, stories from young Europeans across the continent, and we are very, very proud of them. The first of these stories is available in beautiful visual form, and the second of these amazing watchable podcasts will be out very soon. So stay tuned for that over the summer break. We'll also still be tweeting over the summer. You, If you miss us, we'll be on Twitter at EuropeansPod, posting pictures of our foraging probably on Instagram at EuropeansPodcast, and uh, we'll be on Facebook, the Europeans Podcast. Will we? Nobody's really on Facebook anymore. This podcast is a proud member of the Are We Europe family. You can find more like-minded continental podcasts at the link in the show notes. And a final big, big thank you for the season to our production team, senior producer Kat Slaslo and producers Priyanka Shankar and Andre Popovicu. Have a very good summer, everyone. I hope it's a good summer. I say that kind of tentatively. Take a break. You deserve it. Bye, everyone. Se vidimo.